Self-driving vehicles are nothing new. They've been operating inside warehouses and factories for decades. The Postal Service a few years back purchased 350 automated guided vehicles to move pallets in its processing centers. But according to the USPS Office of Inspector General, the experiment didn't quite work out. We get more now from Audit Director Todd Watson. Mr. Watson, good to have you with us. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. And let's begin with what they were trying to do here. Right. So the Postal Service invested in automated guided vehicles, which are self-driving forklifts or tuggers that will move mail from a dock when it comes in off a truck into the workroom floor to be sorted by machines. And then when the machine sorts it, they will take the mail back to the dock. And so the Postal Service invested in this to try and reduce work hours associated with people that would have to manually drive the mail between the dock and workroom floor. This is very short distances, maybe a couple hundred yards at a time. Correct. Correct. The Postal Service had expected this would save about $298 million by reducing the amount of human work hours associated with this work. And these were commercial standard types of automated vehicles that you might find in, you know, an Amazon warehouse or, you know, UPS or something? Correct. This was a third-party vendor that sold these machines to different companies to use in their warehouses. And just a quick question. In your report on this, the amount they spent on them is redacted. I'm just curious as to why that's the case. Well, the Postal Service felt like they would lose some competitive advantage if it disclosed how much cost was associated with this investment. Or they paid too much and they don't want anyone to know, but we'll speculate on that one, I guess. So what happened when they deployed these 350 devices or gadgets, robots? So we found that the Postal Service did not meet its goals for using AGVs. Initially, they expected to operate each AGV 40 hours per week. However, we found almost a quarter of the AGVs weren't used once in over a year. And additionally, we found another quarter that were used on average about once per day. So as a result, we questioned costs totaling $28 million related to the purchase of those underutilized AGVs. And we also estimated that the Postal Service would fall short of their projected savings by at least $105 million. Yeah. And are these things still deployed or what's the status now? Because these were purchased back in 2019. Right. So they're still deployed. What the Postal Service told us is why they didn't use and what we found by interviewing local management was they were deployed in 2019. And right after that is when COVID happened and there was a big surge of package volume. And that caused a lot of issues for the Postal Service. One, it created congestion in their facilities. They didn't have enough space to house all of those packages. And these self-driving AGVs need clear aisleways to be able to operate. If there's an obstruction in this way, it would just stop and not be able to complete to its destination. Additionally, the Postal Service kind of rearranged some of their facilities, moving machines in and out and in different places to try and increase the flow. However, these AGVs were programmed to go to a certain location. And so when that was changed, we found the local facility did not have the knowledge or expertise to be able to update the routing information on these AGVs. Right. So it sounds like some planning for contingencies or for updating, which you'd probably want to do even without the pandemic coming in, because if you have this gadget, well, maybe you want it to go down aisle three today instead of aisle five. 
Right. And that's what we found. There were a few higher performing facilities that were able to use AGVs effectively. And what we found was they made sure they had clear aisleways for the AGVs to go down. And they also were able to pretty much teach themselves by communicating with that third-party vendor on how to change and update routes and pick up and drop off locations. So we made a recommendation to the poll service to go ahead and share some of those best practices that those sites that are actually using them learned to increase the overall usage at the Postal Service. We're speaking with Todd Watson. He's audit director at the Postal Service's Office of Inspector General. So in other words, they can salvage this if they, I mean, the machines are still there. They sound like they are still fairly new and guessing because it's a factory capital piece of gear, they probably last a long time. Correct. There are some locations where this is working really well. Postal Service contends that some of the locations they deployed them at weren't the best, especially after that COVID spike of packages. And so we also recommended that the Pulse Service kind of develop and execute a plan to evaluate locations that would be best suited for these AGVs and then go ahead and deploy them to those locations to help increase the usefulness. These are commercial AGVs, which means other commercial entities use them. Could the Postal Service get some information from another client? It's probably someone the Postal Service already does business with. Uh, Certainly, that was an avenue they can go down. You know, they contracted with a vendor to provide these machines, and certainly they could provide additional support to the Postal Service if needed. And what about managing them? That is to say, should one person on a shift or one person in a facility have quote-unquote ownership of a given AGV, and they could name it Betty or something, and then they would be responsible for programming, maintaining it, and making sure it's used to greatest efficiency. I mean, that's how a lot of these things tend to work. Absolutely. At the places we saw where they were being used effectively, the people were really engaged with the machines. They saw the benefit and really enjoyed using them to complete the task of moving mail through the facility. And so they kind of rallied around those machines and really believed in them. And your staff visited several sites, for example, Middlesex, Essex in North Reading, Massachusetts had low use, for example, one of many that had low uses, but the Music City Annex in Nashville and the Oklahoma City Annex in Oklahoma City, they had high usage. Is there a plan for the high usage facilities to share what they know with Los Angeles, Seminole, Royal Palm, etc., Nashua, New Hampshire, where the utilization is low? Correct. And that was the recommendation we made to the Pulse Service was kind of share these best practices of how it was successful in the locations that are doing well to share that with the locations that are not doing as well. And how did USPS take the recommendations? Well, they disagreed with some of our findings in the report, but they actually agreed and will implement all of our recommendations. So that should correct the low usage if they are able to implement our recommendations. And this was, I'm sure, way outside the scope of study. But as the Postal Service contemplates, just because everybody thinks this is the way the world should go, not for any particular known practical reason, self-driving, say, route delivery vehicles. Is there anything learnings that could translate from these warehouse type equipment to someday self-delivering out on routes? I mean, does anything translate over from one domain to the other? Well, certainly, as the Postal Service is investing in new technology, just learning how to deploy new technology, the knowledge needed and the coordination needed to make it successful. And as the Pulse Service is implementing its Delivering for America, its 10-year plan to achieve service excellence and financial stability, 
they're planning to invest $40 billion in its processing, delivery, and logistics network. And so as it invests that money, it'll be important for them to invest in options that improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the Postal Service. Yeah, it sounds like in a lot of these cases, it's not the technology that's really at an issue because, I mean, really, I read and wrote about self-driving AGVs literally 40 years ago in factories. They, they had a magnetic stripe on the floor or there was different technologies to guide them. I'm sure that's come a long way. But it's the management of it and the planning for it more than the tech itself, isn't it? That is correct. Uh, you know, when there's a change to how you do operations, there's always a learning curve for implementing and getting better. Todd Watson is Audit Director at the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. All right. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Get the Federal Drive delivered automatically. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage 
all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have 
multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.